You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I am the host today, Ed Harrison, and it is the 30th of July, 2020. We're going to be joined today by Mark Chandler of Bannockburn Global Forex. He's the chief market strategist there. Very shortly, he's going to be on. But first, we're going to go to Nick Correa, who's going to tell us the story of the day. Thanks, Ed. In Q2 of this year, the U.S. economy contracted by a full 9.5%. That's an annualized rate of 32.9%. This decline in GDP is the sharpest the U.S. economy has faced since quarterly GDP record-keeping began in the 40s. And while the U.S. economy bounced back during the latter part of the second quarter, more recently, the economic recovery has slowed due to an increase of the spread of the coronavirus as states and municipalities reverse reopening plans. The GDP contraction was wide-ranging. Business investments was down at an annualized pace of 27%, and residential investment dropped at 38.7%. For household spending for services, the annualized drop was an astounding 43.5%. And while employment, spending, and production data demonstrated more strength when the U.S. economy reopened, reversals of that reopening are showing up as slowing in real-time data sets as the epidemic grows in severity in the U.S. The vaunted V-shaped recovery is starting to look more and more like fantasy. The disastrous Q2 GDP comes a day after Chairman Powell's warning that the future of the U.S. economy would, quote, depend significantly on the course of the virus, end quote. What's more, the U.S. Department of Labor Unemployment Insurance Report, released this morning for last week's data, showed initial jobless claims increasing for the second week in a row to 1.43 million, while employers added 7.5 million people to their payrolls in May and June, Payrolls are still down more than 14.5 million from their pre-lockdown levels. With no signs of the virus slowing, with economic data looking dismal, and with Congress having difficulties negotiating another stimulus package, a W-shaped recession may be underway now. And that reality is something that needs to be planned for. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thank you, Nick. So, Mark, it is good to see you. You know, we, you've been on the platform now. This is your third time on Real Vision. Is that right? I think so. Pleasure to be here with you, Ed. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, you're you're at the nice sunny beach I see in uh, in in the background there. So I'm pretty excited for you. Uh, I wish I were there. Yeah, very fortunate that we had a place outside of Manhattan to get away to. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, Nick was talking about some pretty horrific uh, figures today in the uh, in the economy, and uh, it makes me think about you know why the dollar is weakening. You're a, a currency guy. And I want to talk to you about a number of different things. One is about the dollar, you know, the dollar weakening. Um, two is about uh, Europe, what's happening there. And then maybe we can get into some sort of like more macro type of themes later on if we have some time for that. Sure. 
So, Mark, on on the, the connection between horrific uh, uh, numbers in the United States and also this this wave of COVID-19 that seems to uh, be coming uh, to us again and making the numbers uh, turn over again, wh- what sort of impact is that having on the dollar? I mean, do you think that uh, the dollar is weak because the economy is weak? So, yeah, so I, I think that uh, the story I would tell would be really begin with the uh, heart of the COVID crisis back in uh, March and April, when it looked like the world was flocking into dollars. Uh, they really, I mean, not so much the central banks, but the uh, private sector just didn't seem to get, be able to get enough dollars. And uh, as the central banks and governments took actions, and these were very aggressive actions, that what they really did was remove the left-hand tail risk, like the end of days, if you will. Right. And by, once they did this, I think that it's, uh, it really re- reduced the demand for safe haven. So for example, the Euro and the stock market, both the S&P 500, both bottomed on the same day. I think it was like March 23rd. And so as the market felt a healthier appetite for risk underwritten by official action, they no longer needed a dollar and began, began buying higher risk assets. And those would, the leaders would be like uh, the uh, Aussie and Kiwi. It'd be the uh, Scandinavian currencies. Those really led the move. And this is just as the risk on comes back. Emerging markets bottomed a little bit later, but not that much later, and are participating in this general move against the dollar. So, you know, here we are, what, four months later now? Uh, but, you know, now the economy is weakening in the United States. And, you know, it's not necessarily going to precipitate another crisis, but, you know, the dollar is still weakening. Um, what, uh, what sort of the macro backdrop to cause the dollar to be as weak it is now, as it is now? I looked at DXY at just below 93 as we came on. Yeah, so uh, I think the dollar, I think the... Uh so I think to begin, begin before the crisis in a way that what made the dollar strong, I think it really stood on two legs. Interest rate differentials. Remember, uh, uh, even before the crisis, there was something like $13 trillion of negative yielding bonds in the world. And just this week, we made new record highs, almost $16 trillion of negative yielding bonds. And the U.S. bond yield is low. We're at record lows here today as we speak, or very near record lows on the five-year, very close on the two-year, that the interest rate differential has narrowed. That is, U.S. interest rates have fallen further than Europe or Japan, and this has removed one leg. And I think you hint at another one. I mean, we talk about the, how, how horrible that GDP number was on an, on an unannualized basis. Another way to think about it, uh, is the U.S. economy lost almost 10%, 9.5% smaller in June than it was in March. But this is, I want to say, is like old news. You know, right, in the sense right. that we just lived through it. We're already like beginning August soon, and this is going to be getting, you know, we're getting into then Q3. And what's happened recently, I'd say, is not the U.S. economy is not slowing down. The U.S. economy came to a sudden stop, and it's slowly picking up. And the COVID outbreak, the new outbreaks, I, I kind of think I kind of think that we're going to look back at this and sort of uh, laugh at ourselves for thinking it was a second wave. And pandemics like this, the second wave isn't separated from the first wave by a couple of weeks. This is really what the first big shock wave we're getting. And we're just dealing with it at different speeds, like if you will. But right, this is, what right. this is doing, it's sort of like giving us a speed bump to the recovery that's underway. You can see this recovery in different ways. But for example, what I point out is say auto production in the US increased by almost 100% in June over May. 
So the economy is coming back on, and we're going to see this again next week when we get the jobs data. Leaving aside the headline number, the manufacturing sector is coming on, and we probably gained another 350,000 jobs after something like that in the previous uh, the previous month. Manufacturing is coming back on, housing is coming back on. But where it's hitting the dollar is that other countries, especially in Europe, uh, as, a, as a rival for the dollar in the sense, has done a much better job of containing the virus and even containing these outbreaks. So for the first time in years, the Eurozone PMI, that purchasing manager's index that sort of begins off the monthly cycle of high frequency numbers, Europe is, it looks like their recovery is stronger than the US recovery. So again, the dollar lost its interest rate leg and it's losing its growth differential leg. And with both legs underneath, you know, both legs being knocked out of it, you've seen this a swarm of positioning. You know, last time we talked, I was thinking that the dollar's third big cycle since the end of Grand Woods is coming to an end. But the COVID gave it like an extra gasp of life, if you will, through the first quarter. And now I think that the cyclic, cyclical forces are turning. So asset managers, for example, who manage our pension funds and uh, endowments, uh, some industry surveys show that they want to be overweight European stocks and overweight the euro. In the futures market, speculators have been long the euro, but short most of the other major currency futures since the middle of March. And what I look at is the skew in the options market between puts and calls, call it the risk reversal. And this is also showing us a bias, I think, to the euro's upside, dollar downside, just part of Sort of, I would I sort of identify it as a market segment, sort of more the speculative hedge funds, maybe even the macro hedge funds who sort of play in that space. So the major segments of the market, asset managers, speculators, hedge funds, all seem to be turning their ships into a more dollar negative direction. Interesting. And, you know, because you had a macro thesis that this plays into, how long do you see that move lasting? Is this sort of thing going to have legs over months and potentially years? Yeah, so if I'm right about this, and, and I, you know, uh, we both know about the business that, uh, uh, that the, uh, I, I know I've been wrong a lot in the past, and I'll be wrong a lot in the future, and that's what I feel the most confident about. But if I'm right about the dollar's turn, this is a, this is a multi, that's what I really love about the currencies. Uh, they can uh, trend for five, 10 years. And the last time that the dollar bottomed against the euro, the last down move, the last big down cycle in the dollar ended in 2008. The euro was above $1.60. Sterling was above $2.10. And both the Aussie and Canada were above a dollar. And so I'm not saying we're going back there today or tomorrow. It's not a crash or anything like that. In fact, when I was looking at these numbers, the, the US dollar is still up for the year against its three major trading partners. Canada, Mexico, China, Canada. So I wouldn't want to exaggerate the dollar's decline. I think they were still in the early stages, but I do think that the dollar is going to fall further. I think it's going to be a multi-year, like a big part of this big cycle that we're in. After a long multi-year rally, it sells off for multi-years. And I think the focus is going to be the twin deficit problem. Regardless of what happens in November, I think the current account deficit and the budget deficit begins uh, having people question again, as we've seen in some of these reports, questioning the, the viability of the dollar and its global functioning. Yeah, you, you, uh, that's good that you mentioned that because I was really going to go there, especially when you were giving me a quote of 160 on the euro um, and 210 to the pound. Because I mean, to me, the numbers that we're talking about right now 
they don't really speak to uh, a complete loss of faith in the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, that's what Goldman was talking about just recently. And uh, and and so there's a whole narrative that's going out now that basically uh, the U.S. and, you know, partially because of Trump and unilateralism and all this kind of thing, uh, that the U.S. Is in, is in dire straits and no one wants to have the U.S. dollar. Do, do you buy into that? Do you think that, that there's some truth in that? Yeah, I think that uh, for me, those narratives are part of the cyclical turn in the dollar. That uh, we've been buying the dollar. We, I mean, the marketplace have been buying the dollar for several years, since 2008, 2009. And so to get the markets to shift gears mentally, emotionally, and physically, we need a story. And I think that uh, these kinds of stories often take place at two points in the cycle, at the top and the bottom. Because after the dollar falls for many years, like when it was near a buck 60, when the euro was near a buck 60, people said the same thing. The dollar is going to end its reserve status. Its function is going to change. I wrote my first book called Making Sense of the Dollar. It came out in uh, August of 08, in between uh, the failure, or the takeover of Bear and the failure of Lehman. And I was calling for a long-term cyclical dollar rally. And I thought these doomsayers uh, who say the dollar's role is changing and is going to be replaced and all this other stuff. I think for me, that was another sign of confusing cyclical and structural forces. So I think that uh, what this means is that uh, I think Goldman's piece in particular talked about how the price of gold, which, as you know, is making record highs, how that's somehow warning us uh, that the dollar's demise is at hand. And uh, we were talking before about the historian who wrote that essay about uh, the end of, uh, I think it was the end of Amer uh, Soviet America, and right. so the end of the dollar's hegemony. And I just think that these stories, for me, I, I mean, I boil it down to one thing. As much as maybe sort of like what Winston Churchill said it about democracies, it might be the worst system, but next to what? And I think the same thing true about the dollar. These, there's still no uh, compelling alternative, I think, to the depth and breadth of the U.S. Treasury market. I think of it a bit like uh, the, our keyboard. You know, we, we both use this at QWERT keyboard. What a pain in the butt. Surely there's got to be a more ergonomically designed keyboard. And there are lots of them out there. Problem is, is inertia. It can't just be a little bit better. It's got to be a lot better for me to learn a new keyboard. And so the, the riots, and maybe it's in a boxing match where, the, where, the, where the, uh, the champ gets ties. So we need to see a compelling alternative. And I don't think that people are yet convinced uh, that there's a compelling alternative out there. It's not gold. But, and even though we, some people might wish it's gold, there's just not enough. You think about a ton of gold. The U.S. has uh, 8,000 tons of gold, most in the world for central banks. And gold is worth about $150 million a ton or something like that. It's not enough to absorb the uh, something like $11 trillion in reserves. Or it, what I love about the foreign exchange market, biggest market in the world, average daily turnover, $6.6 .6 trillion. We've seen enough already this week being a Thursday. We've seen enough this week in foreign exchange to cover the world trade for almost a year. Gold can't really fill, fill that function yet. And I don't see any other major currency, national currency, that can do that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Yeah, all very interesting. And, you know, uh, let me play devil's advocate here for a little bit, because you were saying that, you know, uh, the dollar is the best, except for all the others, or or, or, or the reverse, I should sure, say. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, of course, the obvious uh, um, uh, replacement that people think about, uh, other than the yuan, that's a totally different story, is the euro. And I want to talk about the euro and, and the euro system in particular, because of these corona bonds that uh, the Europeans have uh, created very recently, or at least they're in the process of thinking about creating. The corona bonds are basically th this crisis-like uh, uh, debt that they're going to create at the EU level. And potentially, if these are AAA-rated bonds, it could replace any you know, German bonds as the benchmark for, for Europe going forward. Isn't that the sort of thing that could eventually cause the dollar to lose its uh, status? Sure, no, that's a good point. And that's, I think you're right. I think that uh, the euro is the second most actively used reserve asset. Uh, it's, it's holding around, say, 20, 22% uh, of global reserves compared to, say, around 60% for the U.S. So the, it has a critical mass. It has an economy roughly the size of the U.S. economy. So the, the, uh, the raw materials are there. And, and I, think, I think you're right as well to focus on the, the size of uh, the bond market uh, that could compete with the U.S. Treasury market. Because right now, the European bond market is more like the U.S. muni market. You have a lot of small issuers. They all have their own little rules. Uh, and so it's, uh, I mean, think about when the U.S. raises, we have like a $45 billion issue as an auction versus you're a large pool of capital, a hedge fund, a sovereign wealth fund. And what are you going to do when you have a, an issue from Italy you want to participate in, but it's 5 billion euros. And so uh, you don't want to be a large holder of any one issue. So, so I think you're right that the Europe, the European bond, this Corona bond, as you call it, I think that is a that has potential. But there's a lot of uh, not misgivings, but a lot of limitations, and I see a lot of people trying to like exaggerate its significance. Uh, it is true that they'll have a common bond, though it's not the first time. The EU's had bonds before, and there's already some common bonds in the form from the European Stability uh, Stabilization Mechanism, ESM, and the European Investment Bank, uh, e e uh, EIB. They also have bonds that are collectively issued. Uh, but this is a bit different. Uh, I, I concede that. Uh, but it's, I'd say that uh, positive development. But the real uh, the issue, I think, for me is whether what do central banks want and other large pools of capital? One of the reasons why the U.S. often reopens current issues is to like give it more seasoning, give it more depth and breadth. And I think that the European the European plan is, is these emergency bonds. They could be a one-off. That's one right. point. Is right. They could be one-off, so there might not be as much depth to the market. That these bonds will be bought by like the ECB, insurance companies, and they'll be taken off the market. So that could be traded and being a, a really a, a useful benchmark. And secondly, I think it's just the sheer size. I think what central banks need isn't they, they need the whole curve to be able to to be able to properly uh, manage uh, the, the nation's savings, the nation's wealth. And I, I don't think that that's going to exist right away uh, for the for the, these European bonds. But I do think that it's I, in my work, I sort of compare it to the scaffolding. You know, when I see them build buildings or bridges, they build a scaffolding first. And it, the scaffolding looks a lot like the object that they're building. but It's not quite the same thing. So I think that this helps us. I think that uh, ECB President Lagarde uh, commented at one of her recent press conferences 
that these that these bonds, these joint bonds, will help enhance the euro's international position. But I think it's going to take years, and and we need to really make sure these aren't just a one-off. You know, during World War One in the U.S., uh, the president at the time Wilson nationalized the railroads, and then when the war was over, he he reprivatized them. And so we should. I think we need to be uh, like cautious about projecting emergency measures as if they're going to last forever. I'm part of this camp. I think that sees the eurozone and monetary union as essentially a sort of an economic solution to a political problem. And the political problem is how is Europe going to compete when you have these huge economies like the U.S., China, India is not that far behind. Last year, it moved into fifth place out of the world size economies. So how is Europe going to compete? And the way they're going to compete, it's sort of like maybe what Benjamin Franklin told us in 13 colonies. He said, you either hang together or you hang separately. All right. Yeah, that good point. Yes, I really like that section that you had. I mean, uh, I, I had some uh, some some follow up questions, but I mean, you answered pretty much everything. I think that makes a lot of sense, Mark. And uh, because of that, I want to I, I want to go into like the third section that I'm thinking of, because I know that you're someone who understands the political economy. You're a big thinker uh, when you're thinking about the longer term picture. What's on your mind? Like, what what's an economic uh, subject that you think really deserves um, hammering onto? Yeah, so I'll tell you a, a theme I'll share with you that I've been I've been working on. Because I, I try to, I, you know, like all of us, you know, it's sort of like you know they, they talk about the uh, the five blind men who uh, stumble on an elephant, but they don't know it's an elephant because they're blind. And so one person feels a tail and says it's a snake. Another one feels a leg and says it's a tree. So the part of the elephant that I'm feeling. Uh, if I can put it like that, is that this uh, uh, we've gone through this uh, phase and it's been most of our careers. Uh, one is characterized by uh, uh, sort of Reagan Thatcher, liberalization, uh, deregulation. And the most powerful argument is economically efficient. We do things because it's economically efficient. And that's a very powerful, compelling argument. It has been. And I think that we have entered a phase now where I call it the end of economic primacy. But economic efficiency is not the end all and be all. We've got other considerations. And it's not just, again, I, I want to separate this from like uh, who occupies the White House. I think these are a bigger picture beyond any one person. I think economic nationalism is on the rise. I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, before the crisis, the U.S. was importing something like 95% of our, of our penicillin from China. This doesn't make any sense. And I think that what we've learned from this, this uh, COVID crisis is we a new need we have. We don't only really need to be energy self-sufficient, food self-sufficient. We need to be somehow medical, medicine, uh, supply, something like in that, in that public health space, more sufficient, more self-sufficient. And that means uh, we're going to have to do more of it ourselves here, producing more things here. And so I think that uh, that fits in nicely with that import substitution strategy that we sort of call um, uh, Make America Great Again. Uh, Europe has the same challenges. Uh, you know, India and Japan are paying companies to leave China. So you've got economic nationalism. You've got econ you've got uh, national security. Another check on economic efficiency type arguments. And I think that uh, as we uh, sort of the, the as the uh, baton passes to the next generation, we're already seeing uh, green issues ecological issues move to the forefront as well. It was not just good to do something because it's economically efficient. What is that carbon footprint we're leaving? And I think that uh, 
maybe our generation has been too slow to come around to this. And but I think that this is the general wave, and it's also going to check economic efficiency. The other force I think that's going to check economic efficiency type of arguments is that we. I think many societies are looking within themselves, and you can see this uh, in the U.S. again right now, uh, looking in itself and seeing uh, if it can help correct, fix uh, wrongs, societal mm-hmm. wrongs. Mm-hmm. And then also, that, so there's a lot of implications from that. For example, uh, one of the uh, le- less international trade uh, mean, could mean higher inflation. Uh, some people think that, uh, some, some studies have shown really that the uh, this global explosion of global trade helped reduce prices again economic efficiency and if we're going to have globalization going to sort of backstep from it uh, maybe you get higher prices and maybe if we don't do things just because it's economically efficient uh, maybe it doesn't only raise prices but it might slow down growth at a time when you have like rising expectations where more people want seems more things so I, i'm thinking of this as a new like a, a paradigm that tries to make sense out of What's happened since the great financial crisis, seeing how the pandemic is accelerating some of these forces. And what does this mean uh, for this, uh, in the, in, yeah, this like, kind of like big picture that a lot, of, a lot of people I know who are involved in the markets, you know, we, we sort of make the daily fight, but we try to think about what does this mean? What is the meaning of this in the big picture? What are these long-term trends or memes that we could focus on that help give meaning to and context to these everyday types of events? Yeah, uh, great, uh, uh, great thesis, by the way. And uh, I, I was going to ask you before about you know w- what the pandemic is doing to that, but I think that you got to it. It's accelerating some of those trends. And you know, at the the beginning, you started off saying that it's not dependent upon who's in the White House per se, and you went on to talk about it's being relevant in India, also relevant in Europe. How widespread do you think this move toward you know reversing uh, so-called economic efficiency at, as the pinnacle and the only thing to think about? Yeah, well, in some ways, I think that maybe it's the U.S. and uh, so the Anglo-American economies that went over, maybe you had, uh, went too far in that direction. So maybe the snapback or the pullback there only get, brings us back to maybe where Europe was. You think about the uh, uh, greater regulation, greater respect, rules respecting private, uh, personal privacy, uh, things that uh, are in some ways more advanced and more state oriented. In some ways, that's what we're talking about here. Talking about the talking about the end of economic primacy. And I think it does mean uh, that it sort of like make tries to make sense out of a greater role for the state. And, uh, and this is partly in uh, distribution as well as production issues. So I, I think that the world is moving in this direction, I think, towards reducing the e- emphasis on economic efficiency. Uh, but I think that the U.S., Britain, Australia, Canada, maybe we have a little bit more of a way to cover it to get to that ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got to go into this a little bit more in the, in the future. It's very interesting because we were talking about, you know, what, uh, you know, the differences between Denmark and Sweden, the United States versus uh, truly socialist countries like uh, Venezuela. What does that mean? Uh, I think that uh, you're you're telling us that you know we're we're moving towards a much more European style of, uh, and even the Europeans themselves are moving uh, in in a direction where it's not just about economic efficiency. Very very interesting stuff, Mark. And uh, we're gonna have to leave it there. But uh, I really appreciate your coming on and talking to us about the markets and also about this big picture stuff. Well, thanks a lot. It's always good to see you.
and uh, hopefully I'll I'll be at the beach myself in uh, three weeks. That's that's Good. where it's gonna start. Good. Good for you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.